Hello, everyone, and welcome to another COVID-19 Law and Policy Briefing. Our briefings are produced by Public Health Law Watch, uh, which is a George Consortium initiative housed at the Northeastern University School of Law. I want to thank our co-sponsors, as always, uh, the Center for Law, or Center, excuse me, Center for Public Health Law Research at Temple University, the Network for Public Health Law, Change Lab Solutions, and the APHA Law Section. Uh, we are here, as we always are, to provide expert legal analysis during the COVID-19 pandemic and hopefully to answer some of your questions. Uh, for more information, on the COVID legal response, I would encourage you to check out our report, uh, Assessing Legal Responses to COVID-19, which came out last summer. But the great news is we have our, our second volume of the report coming out uh, really in just the next couple of weeks, sometime uh, later in the month of March or early April. And uh, it covers a wide range of topics related to COVID-19 legal response. And our topic today is going to be uh, one of the topics that's featured prominently in the report and is really one of the most important topics uh, currently currently being debated about response to the COVID-19 pandemic, and that is the issue of school reopenings and their effect on children, uh, how online learning uh, has affected uh, children uh, across our country, and some of the, the policy and legal debates that come up in the context of thinking about what's going on with schools right now. And to help us talk about that, I'm very, very pleased to have uh, two very special guests who also are the authors of the chapter on this topic in our upcoming report. Um, so I should introduce myself first. I'm Lance Gable. I'm an associate professor of law at Wayne State University Law School. Um, and joining me today are Stacey Kirshner, who's the Associate Director for the Center for Health, Center for Law, Health, and Society, excuse me, at uh, Georgia State University College of Law, and also Brooke Silverthorne, who is an Assistant Clinical Professor uh, in the Health Law Partnership Legal Services Clinic, at also at Georgia State University College of Law. And uh, she's also the Co-Director of the Health Law Partnership, which is a medical legal partnership uh, with Atlanta Legal Aid Society and the Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. Um, please use the hashtag, uh, COVID Law Briefing, hashtag COVID Law Briefing, for any questions and comments, commentary and response to our discussions today. Uh, so as I said, we're talking about uh, school reopenings, uh, talking about online learning, we're talking about how um, children have been affected by uh, having disruptions in our normal educational system processes during the COVID pandemic. And so um, I wanted to start uh, by asking Brooke, uh, one of the most consistent messages that we've seen uh, in the media and discussions about risks of COVID uh, during this pandemic is that children are at much less risk than older people uh, from, from you know, having COVID symptoms and serious consequences. Is this an accurate perception of the risk? And how has this driven the policy discussion about children in schools? Yeah, thanks, uh, Lance, um, for the question. So the it, it's a difficult question to answer um, because the rate of COVID-19 among children is difficult to determine. Uh, evidence does suggest that in general, children are more likely to experience milder symptoms um, or even to be asymptomatic. So uh, they're less likely to be tested uh, for COVID-19 or even to report illness. Um, children who have had more severe cases of COVID uh, have had some similar symptoms like fever, headache, fatigue, upper respiratory, uh, but some have also experienced uh, some of the stomach symptoms, nausea, um, and a small number have experienced what doctors are calling multi-system inflammatory, inflammatory syndrome, which can be quite serious. Um, and it has, you know, symptoms of rash, purplish and swollen fingers and toes. But because children really aren't likely um, or as likely to have severe illness, it may appear that they are healthy and can safely be around others. Um, however, uh, they may still contract the disease, uh, spread it to family, to teachers, to other school personnel, or other members of the community without being aware. And then these people in turn may become ill, and it may be more serious. 
serious. And so it's it's more complicated because children don't live in a bubble. Uh, they're part of a family. They're part of a school. Uh, they're part of a, a community and a neighborhood um, of adults who may be more at risk of serious disease complications. And almost a year ago now, it's crazy to think that it's been almost a year, but um, this was sort of the driving thought for the school closures that we saw um, in, you know, in March across the country. Um, and since then, some schools have successfully reopened to varying degrees. Uh, the CDC, the American Academy of Pediatrics, and other experts do recognize the importance of in-school uh, or in-person schooling uh, for students. And as more is known about the science, they have issued and revised guidance for reopening. For safe in-person schooling, they recommend, though, many of the same measures necessary elsewhere in the community. So social distancing, wearing masks properly, hand washing, sanitizing, cleaning of facilities, proper air circulation, staying home when sick, contact tracing, um, and then quarantining for immediate contacts. Uh, but the big problem is that many of these recommendations create a huge challenge for school districts. Um, older schools often have older HVAC or windows that uh, resulting in poor ventilation. Schools may simply not have the physical space uh, for students to maintain enough distance, um, and not just in classrooms, but also in other common areas like hallways during class changes, in lunchrooms, um, which may be particularly problematic given that uh, most students who are eating lunch in a lunchroom are going to be maskless during that time, um, or on school buses where previously, you know, we have the three to the seat <laughs> uh, in, those, in those bench seating uh, school buses. Um, so many of these measures actually add to the responsibility of teachers, right, who already have a lot on their plate. Uh, they now have to monitor students for mask use uh, and uh, proper distancing um, and hygiene. They have to clean down their classrooms all while continuing to teach, often to both in-person and virtual students at the same time, depending on the model of reopening that a particular school has chosen. So in the short term, districts may have to hire more cleaning uh, staff, may have to reduce capacity by alternating when students are in person. Um, in the longer term, it will be important to upgrade HVAC systems, uh, to be mindful uh, when deciding or when designing new construction of schools about things like hallway and other, other common area uh, space, windows that open, as well as the types of HVAC systems that are going to be installed in new schools. Um, so if we all think back to what it was like in school uh, when we were there, uh, we'll realize that it's, it's really a lot more complex mm -hmm. in the short term, but also in the long term um, than just, you know, opening school and, and welcoming students back in. Well, thank you. Um, as, as Brooke very uh, expertly noted, uh, this is an incredibly complicated situation that we've been dealing with now for about a year. And so I wanted to ask Stacy, um, you know, in addition to being complex, this has also been extremely politically contentious, pr practically difficult, legally contentious in, in different areas. And so um, I wanted to ask what have been some of the primary political discussions and debates going on around schooling? And what are some of the legal issues that are implicated in the in the decisions about opening or closing schools? And, and finally, now that the CDC has issued new guidance for safe in-person schooling, does that change any of the discussion or, or the legal landscape at all for what's happening with schools? Yeah, thanks, Lance. Um, well, school closure and reopening is a huge debate. One misconception is that the president can demand opening or closing of schools, but it isn't really as simple as that. It's really a state and local decision. The federal government can tie fund, um, future funding to opening schools, but can't just flat out demand it. The new CDC guidance isn't dramatically different than prior guidance. They have created levels based on disease spread in the community, but they aren't recommending schools closed 
closed that have been able to successfully reopen safely. Um, educators and public health officials, they both recognize that the restrictions to in-person learning due to COVID have been really hard and have impacted the health of children in other ways. Schools offer opportunities for exercise and physical fitness. They um, offer nutrition through the school lunch program, and they have, you know, sometimes even on-campus nurses or um, health centers. And many students have really suffered with mental health concerns through this pandemic and don't have access to services like school counselors. Yeah, so so all of those are really excellent points and, and kind of illustrate how there's really a wide range of services in addition to just the educational aspects of school that, that are really affected by uh, some of the the, the need to, 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 to go remote, to go online for, for schooling. And, and so I wanted to kind of follow up on that point um, and, and ask Brooke. So we, we've seen, um, obviously, the, 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 this huge transition to online. It happened suddenly, but now we've been doing it for quite a while. Uh, and we've begun to see some of the implications, the broader implications in terms of access to education, uh, the disparities in, in that access, also in, ac- in how that affects uh, disparities in health and access to technology and other kinds of issues as well. So what are some of the long-term effects of remote schooling, online schooling for children, and how does how does equity play into those effects? Yeah, so, you know, as we know, education is the most modifiable social determinant of health. Success in school and graduation helps to ensure future employment and income, which is tied to better health comes and longer lifespan. And it, it really goes both ways. So children who are healthier are better able to learn and children who attain educational success are healthier over their lifespan. Right? So um, COVID-19 has burdened uh, low-income communities and minority communities at much greater rates uh, than majority white or higher income communities. And these are the same communities that are already facing disproportionately higher health and educational disparities. Data also shows that there are higher hospitalizations and death rates uh, of Black and other minority children than white children. And minority and low-income families uh, have less access to high-quality health care facilities, health, health coverage, uh, nutritious foods, safe and affordable housing. Adding to that, um, a lot of parents in these families are overrepresented as essential workers uh, in the lower-paid health care positions, food industry, retail, transportation, and utility positions, um, further sort of exacerbating that risk to them. Additionally, minority children are more likely to attend schools in high poverty neighborhoods with greater achievement gaps than uh, schools in more affluent neighborhoods. And these schools tend to experience higher teacher turnover, have less access to resources, books, equipment, offer fewer advanced academic options, and are more likely to be older buildings in need of repair. So um, not having uh, up-to-date HVAC or even windows um, that open, which as we mentioned previously, is really important uh, with COVID-19. So children in in low-income families have really borne the brunt of the technology divide. Um, And and this, uh, you know, also includes children who might live in rural communities as well. These students are likely to have access to a high-speed internet connection. They may not have a computer or other device um, that uh, they can use uh, in order to access their education. Um, Or they might have to share that device among the family. So multiple siblings or even parents who are now working at home. Um, And so, you know, that has also contributed to increased student absences. Um, And all of these things uh, contribute to widening that education gap that already existed pre-COVID-19. Yeah. Uh, Another area that I I think we've seen a lot of potential for uh, disparate outcomes 
outcomes and disparate effects is in the area of, um, of special education services and you know, looking at how uh, children who have and need disability accommodations and, and other supports to assist with learning have been affected by uh, by the, the move to online learning. Uh, and so I wanted to ask Stacy, uh, what is being done in this area uh, to address the needs of, of children who, who need additional uh, learning support and, uh, you know, wh- whether, whether because of uh, your special education needs or because uh, there are students who, for whom English is a second or third language, um, how has this been handled and, and, and what, are the, what are some of the strategies that can be used to try to assist some of these students? Yeah, students with special needs um, are guaranteed the right to a free and appropriate public education under IDEA. That's the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. And depending on their needs, these students might have really a variety of supports and services at school listed in their individualized education plans. Those are IEPs. Even if schools have gone remote, the U.S. Department of Education has emphasized that school districts that are closed to in-person learning must still carry out those students' IEPs. So things like speech, physical and occupational therapy, those kind of things, they're difficult to plan and schedule and deliver remotely, um, but it's required. So some parents may be finding themselves filling the roles of being that child's aide or their nurse or their service provider and their teacher while they're still assisting other siblings or possibly work themselves. And one thing that some of the school districts have done to address this issue is to bring back students who have more complex needs to in-person learning first. And even while they're keeping other students who don't necessarily have disabilities um, remote. And so with those precautions in place, with the low student and teacher ratios in the school, and with less contact with other students, the needs of those students can be individually addressed. For students who aren't diagnosed with disabilities, so there's also an added problem. The U.S. Department of Ed has provided flexibility around completing those initial assessments and observations to determine eligibility, but school districts must still move forward. They have to keep going with identifying students who are in need of services and getting those services in place. And similar to students with special needs, Department of Ed has also stated that schools must continue to provide English language learning services even while remote. More English language learning students or ELL students um, than English speaking students live in poor households and they have less access to high speed internet and computers, things that we've heard about with um, minority communities. They also tend to have more individuals living in their households, which creates more risk, not just for virus spread, but also for the challenges of trying to do in person, I'm sorry, trying to do um, remote schooling all in the same um, physical space. And also an added challenge for these students is communication with their with the students and with the families of those students. That's really presented a unique set of challenges, not just for instruction and teaching, but also for help with technology problems um, or understanding pandemic policies and procedures. Um, also, remote learning limits that peer interaction where students have the opportunity to practice their English language skills. And so as much as possible, schools need to provide materials in the students' native languages and communicate with the household, with the parents um, in their native languages and offer opportunities for interaction of the students even while remote. These are all really challenging issues. And I, and I know that um, one of the, big, you know, obviously there's been a big push nationwide to try to move back to in-person schooling uh, to avoid some of those some of those additional challenges from online and remote schooling. Um, but obviously we still have a ways to go. And we know that even though the vaccines are, are being 
being uh, beginning to be distributed. We know that the, those vaccines have not yet um, been approved, especially for, for younger children, really anyone under 16 at this point in the United States. And so obviously, um, th there's still going to be a ways to go before we can fully safely transition back to fully in-person schooling. And so I, I guess one question I had um, for Brooke is, what are some of the options available right now um, that governments can support or enact that can help children learn safely and effectively, whether they're going back into an in-person setting or whether they're continuing online for a period of time? And, and does the change in administration, now the Biden administration is in place and is starting to change um, the direction of some of the federal inter uh, intervention strategies for COVID-19, how does that affect what's going on at the state and local levels? Yeah, I mean, certainly having strong leadership and strong messaging uh, at the at the federal level it is helpful. Um, and uh, it, it sort of sets the tone um, for the country, right, that that states and, and local governments can can look to um, and, and know they have support for. Uh, but most of the work really does uh, need to be done sort of at that state and local level. Uh, COVID relief funds are available to states uh, uh, for schools through CARES and the end of the year appropriations bill. These funds can be used uh, for reducing disease spread by purchasing additional uh, PPE and cleaning supplies, um, to increasing staff, to sanitize schools, to upgrading ventilation systems. So some of these are going to be more in the short term, uh, immediate, um, and some of them will be sort of longer term. Uh, you know, what are we learn? What are we learning from this, and how are we applying what we're learning um, moving forward? Kind of um, responses. Um, funds can also be used to prevent learning loss through uh, purchasing technology for students. Um, so making sure that all students have access to high-speed internet, have access to um, devices in order to be able to access um, their education. Um, funds can be distributed to schools uh, who have students uh, that are in the greatest uh, need first uh, to prevent some of those gaps from widening uh, for minority and low-income students, um, students with special needs, uh, and English language learners. I mean, I really think that, you know, this is, this whole situation is providing us um, certainly with challenges, but where there are challenges, it, it, there's also opportunity, right? And so this is really uh, providing states and, and local governments and school systems the opportunity to, to think through um, what uh, this is teaching us to learn uh, many opportunities for learning from not only from what isn't working, but from what is working and, um, uh, you know, applying creativity. One of the things that I often say uh, in many contexts is it would be a real shame if we, if we just, you know, went back to, you know, everything as business as usual, you know, after we get uh, past, uh, you know, this sort of crisis situation with COVID. And so hopefully um, the, the schools and, and the state and local governments, as well as the federal government, will will really use this as an opportunity. Yeah, I, I, I think that's a really good point. And I think that, that there's really been, um, I, I think that, you know, the different uses of technology and different uh, different approaches to pedagogy um, have really been required by this this disruption, but but could end up in the long term, uh, resulting in some some interesting new ideas uh, for for education. Now, I, I wanted I wanted to give Stacy one more chance to weigh in. Uh, to to Stacy, do you have any other um, recommendations or any other ideas that you wanted to highlight as to uh, what uh, federal, state, and local governments can be doing and uh, policy changes that that could be implemented either in the short term or in the 
the longer term to try to to help children who are who are experiencing this pandemic and experiencing the brunt of it through the educational system. Yeah, Lance, thanks. Um, one thing you mentioned a few minutes ago was about vaccinations for students and those not being available yet, but we can prioritize in the short term teachers and staff accessing those vaccines. And that will help, um, you know, really support our teachers in coming back to in-person learning so that they feel safe and they feel like their administration is, um, you know, supporting them in what they need to do in order to be working with our students in person. Um, So that's um, sort of the first thing. And a lot of states are doing that, but not all states are there yet. So I think prioritizing teachers and staff um, should definitely be um, something that's on the list in the short term. In the longer term, um, some of the problems that have arisen with COVID involve legal issues that can be addressed with careful planning. And as um, Brooke was alluding to before, um, you know, really taking the opportunity to assess what's been done um, during the pandemic, what was um, available to us leading up to the pandemic, and seeing where those gaps are is going to be critically important. Um, For instance, districts may not have been familiar with who has the legal authority in their district, in their state to close and reopen schools. Like just understanding who has that authority and and what can be done is really, um, you know, just a first step. Um, They may also initially have faced legal uncertainties about like things like distributing technology to their students that may have been purchased through funding lines that were like for very specific uses. So they may want to develop plans that in include um, the ability to quickly respond and to distribute things that have been purchased under under different streams or um, under um, specific uses that, that may ordinarily restrict those. Um, districts may also have had plans like to rely on community service providers that maybe they normally work with in the summer or over um, spring break or, or winter break um, for provision of things like lunches or food services. Um, but in an emergency, these organizations might not be able to quickly stand up their services. And so having um, those discussions and plans in place ahead of time and knowing like who will be able to act quickly and, and respond quickly is really critical. Um, and also just drafting and practicing those plans is the first step, but you have to continually update and maintain those plans because the people change in those positions, um, you know, new information becomes available, different types of emergencies may call for different types of measures. And so it's really critical to, to continue to do that, not just right after COVID, not just while everyone has this fresh on their mind, but then also, you know, three years from now, five years from now, making sure those plans are still up to date, that the people who are going to be executing those plans know um, what they need to do. And then also what, you know, even if those plans can't be implemented exactly when the next emergency arises, maybe the this, um, characteristics of the next emergency are a little bit different, the partners will be familiar with their roles and their responsibilities, and they can more quickly adapt and respond to the situation. Um, and states can also use this experience to really examine, and, and this is a long-term Um, longer term action plan, um, but to really examine their funding formulas. You know, federal funds for education represents only about 8% of non-COVID funding. It isn't isn't much of the total. States and local jurisdictions split that remaining 92%, and that split really varies by state. But local funding generally comes from property taxes, which perpetuates the types of problems, the educational disparities that we see 
um, for lower income districts who are being under-resourced. So with the poor importance of education in influencing health outcomes, this is really problematic in non-pandemic times, and it's incredibly unjust to continue to allow um, situations like these to move forward. So, so just examining that funding formula and determining what might be a more equitable distribution across the state is really critical. I want to thank both of you so much for your insights today, for sharing your knowledge with us, but also encourage everyone to read their chapter when it comes out in the report uh, coming out in the next few weeks, uh, because it really goes into these issues in great depth and some other issues as well. Um, but obviously, we need to keep working to um, to get through this pandemic and also to make sure that, that children are not being uh, left behind. They're not facing disparate harms based on their 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 differential a- uh, access to, to school and resources uh, related to learning. So I, I want to thank everyone again. I want to thank especially my guests, Stacey Kirshner and Brooke Silverthorne, uh, both of the Georgia State University College of Law. And I, we are going to be broadcasting these Twitter briefings uh, virtually every Tuesday and Thursday uh, at noon Eastern. Go to Public Health Law Watch uh, at Public Health Law Watch. Law is at PH Law Watch. Uh, or search uh, hashtag COVID Law Briefing to find all of our briefings. Uh, recordings are available on the Public Health Law Watch website. They're also archived uh, by the Weekend Health Law Podcast, which is available at www.twill.com. Uh, that's T-W-I-H-L.com. Finally, I want to thank uh, Faith Kalik and Liz Voyles, who are the producers of our COVID-19 Law and Policy Briefings, and thank all of you for tuning in. We'll see you next time. Until then, please stay safe and wash your hands, double mask, keep your distance uh, whenever you can, and also when you get that vaccine appointment, please get vaccinated. Thanks, everyone. Have a good day.